Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 138 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'd very much like to join my cat, Clarkie, who is currently sat with his face in a radiator. In a radiator? It's one of those that's got the, the gap in the middle and he's just got his face right in it. It's very cute and Aww, yeah. warm, I assume. He's going to melt his brain. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and pine needles are the new sand and or cat litter if you are a cat owner. <laughs> it's just everywhere. Just absolutely everywhere. They fall off me when I shower. They're stuck to my feet. They're in my <laughs> clothes. They're attached to the cats. They are everywhere. Are they down the front of your dungarees? Uh, not yet, but well, I'll have a little look later. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord and I'm eating my emotions and by emotions I mean boredom. So if you could send help or at least some really good snacks, that'd be great. Thanks. Have you run out of the snacking cheese? Do you know what? I've, I've made, I've actually placed an order for, <laughs> on their website for snacking cheese, snacking um, pickles and snacking what I can only call like describe as meat crisps. They actually <laughs> sent us a message on Twitter. They um, to, because they were pleased with how much you liked their snack and cheese. I mean, imagine the second plug we're giving them now. <laughs> we're not even being paid for this. People. We're not. We're actually not. I mean, if you want to send me some for free, please do. But yeah, no, we're not. Meat crisps. Oh, it's me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Can we clip that and just have that forever? Jen going, meat crisps. Oh, sorry. Is it me? Later on, I speak to Professor Pat Price about the Catch Up With Cancer campaign and how COVID is hitting cancer patients especially hard. I catch up with the miracle of science, that is Dr Suze Kundu, to find out what's going on in the world of STEM and how to tackle those homeschool science lessons. In Jenny Off The Blocks, I'll be talking about business meetings in Dubai and a bad week for the Women's Super League. And in Rated or Dated, we ask, what's with the kids today? As we watch 1955's Rebel Without a Cause. But first, not one, not two, not three, but four bits of good news. And some shit, obviously. Still, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where the good news is, this year, we don't have to have that debate about when to stop saying Happy New Year. Yeah, it didn't last very long, did it? Didn't. (laughs) So, who wants some more good news? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go on then. You know, we all learned what impeachment meant and how it worked this time last year. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, great news. Turns out that wasn't for nothing. Hooray! Hooray! Okay, maybe I shouldn't be glib about how deeply unpleasant last Wednesday was, and not just because I found myself watching a speech by Lindsey Graham at 3am. But with Trump now facing multiple threats to his presidency, it's nice to see him face the repercussions of his actions at least one time. Mm. I can't really give you a clear picture of what the situation is on impeachment or the 25th Amendment, speaking to you as I am from the past. So let's concentrate on what we know did happen. On Wednesday, an unholy alliance of the angry, the brainwashed, the stupid and the terminally racist, high on inexplicable self-righteousness and QAnon facts, and egged on by Trump himself, stormed the Capitol building and were within seconds of reaching their intended targets, which included Veep, Mike Pence and Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Five people, including a police officer, died during or as a result of the insurrection. 
If you're interested in the nitty-gritty of what happened that day, rather than merely opinion, which <laughs> is obviously also available, massive sigh, you can't go wrong with the brave as hell and soon-to-be award-winning reporting, surely, surely, mm-hmm. by ITV's Robert Moore, which stood head and shoulders above everybody else's on-the-ground work. Also incredibly useful to understanding the geography of the day's events is an article in the Washington Post entitled Inside the Capital Siege. I'll put links to both of those pieces in the show's description this week. And then you maybe won't feel entitled to tweet about how police stood back and did nothing or why is that man running up the stairs and not shooting them? When, in fact, some police put in an extraordinary effort to stand their ground, including the just-mentioned officer Eugene Goodman, whose effort to draw the zombie horde, apologies, rioters, towards himself and away from the door of the Senate is one of the bravest things I've seen in years. Mm -hmm. While at the same time, the president was ignoring calls to make a plea for peace, because of course he was. He did later put out a video statement, which I've discovered if you replace the word election with the word pint, is pretty much exactly what you'd say when you're trying to get that one mate who goes wild when he drinks into a taxi. (laughs) I know you think it was stolen. I think it was stolen. But you need to go home. You're very special. We love you. Go home. (laughs) So much to say on all of this and also Trump's removable from social media. And hopefully we will get to that in the next few weeks. But just in case I don't get the chance to say it at any point, I think it's worth saying now that Josh Hawley is a massive cunt. Thanks for listening. I don't know that I know who Josh Hawley is. I'm not sure either. Josh Hawley is the guy, the politician, who went in to the Capitol building, passed the protesters and gave them the salute. He's a Republican. He went in and argued that the um, that the election should be, you know, recounted. And then after this happened and they went back again in the evening, he continued to argue that it had been stolen. After that information, I agree with your statement. As lockdown number 9,845 rumbles on, unless you've basically been institutionalised, I think we can all agree it's a bit of a pain in the arse now, right? Mm. Well, for parents, and particularly mums it seems, it is the gift that just keeps pouring Ribena over their laptops and screaming, But I want to see Toby! (laughs) Understandably, that's going to take its toll on a person, and the good people of Mumsnet found in a recent survey that 76% of the 1,500 women questioned said that the pandemic had had a negative impact on their mental health. Okay, sure, the pandemic has probably had a negative impact on lots of people, not just parents, but the added pressures of homeschooling left 70% saying they'd struggled to balance work and childcare. 77% said it was impossible to work uninterrupted. To be fair, I reckon Hannah probably has similar kind of problems with Joan. Mm. <laughs> I think it's the other way around. I think Joan is <laughs> trying to get on with shit. <laughs> Hannah keeps interrupting her. Important cat work. But 79% also said that homeschooling fell largely to them. And that's before you take into account worries about financial pressures, as well as concerns about the health and happiness of their children. Not to mention the ongoing impact on maternity services. And I can say that I actually genuinely don't know if my health visitor still exists. Sheesh. Speaking of the survey results, Mumsnet founder Justine Roberts said, During the last round of school closures, mothers were able to do just one third of the uninterrupted paid work that fathers were able to do. 
it's time for dads to step up and do their fair share of homeschooling, housework and childcare. And I'd just like to add to that that if women were actually remunerated fairly for their paid work, perhaps childcare would also be split more fairly. And Mick has got some more of this later in Sexism of the Week. I do indeed. But before that, let's take a look at what else is happening here on Plague Island. I'm going to start with a positive because fuck knows we all need something to cling to right now. And that comes courtesy of the news another vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, has been approved in the UK, which makes it the third vaccine to get the thumbs up for a rollout. The government's target to have all adults in the UK vaccinated by autumn, starting with more than 40 million of the most vulnerable having the jab before mid-February. Can I ask a question, Mickey? Did they specify which autumn? (laughs) No, no. I was optimistically, as we were about to find out, uh, thinking it was this autumn. You're right to raise that question. But they're starting with more than 14 million of the most vulnerable having the jab before this mid-February. And to be fair, it's continuing at a decent pace, with seven new mass vaccination centres opening across England. Are these targets overly optimistic? Well, yes, and then some. Do living up to optimism and this government go hand in hand's face? I genuinely can't not do that anymore. (laughs) No, and then some. And Hannah's very right. Who knows which autumn they're talking about? But this hope is all we've got and it is currently on course. So let's keep hoping because man is it needed. And that question is rhetorical. It is, as ever, and as Hannah pointed out earlier, Monday as we record, and so restrictions as they are now are, of course, currently being reviewed, meaning I have no idea what you may or may not be allowed to do come, well, Tuesday, let alone when you're listening to this on Wednesday or beyond. As it stands now, at this very moment, it's a sign of how serious the coronavirus crisis is that this morning, Professor Chris Whitty, the government's chief medical advisor and reality check to PM Boris Johnson's various flights of fancy at number 10 press conferences, took to the airwaves to address the nation to emphasise how very grim the epidemic is, with the numbers higher than they were in the previous peak, quote, by some distance. He told the Today programme, We're now at a situation where in the UK as a whole, around one in 50 people is infected. And in London, it's around one in 30. In parts of London, it's around one in 20. So there is a very high chance that if you meet someone unnecessarily, they will have COVID. He added that people should not wait for any government tinkering, that's his word, with rules, but should double down now on avoiding any unnecessary contacts. Tank fly boss walk jam nitty gritty. You're listening to advice from Professor Chris Whitty. Next slide, please. I love Whitty. He makes me feel like reassured, but then also like any context in which I ever see him talk, I feel very much unreassured because he's standing next to a member of our government. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I don't think unreassured is a word, is it? Soz. Unreassured. I yeah. mean, if, it, if it's not a word, yet, it kind of needs to be. And then it just, you look in the dictionary, it's just a big picture of Boris Johnson. <laughs> and then it says how you feel now. How early can you get in nominations for Word of the Year? <laughs> I noticed that on CNN the other night, um, they kept talking about the insurrection or whatever it is that people are calling it, because people are calling it some very different things, um, depending on their political viewpoint. But CNN kept calling it an unprecedented situation. And I was like, not again! <laughs> not again! I can't have two, two unprecedented situations going on at the same time. Did you see that tweet the other day about someone who said someone had said something about like historians basically in the context of what was going on in America and 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 historian 
whose name I've forgotten, I'm sorry, um, tweeted something like, let me tell you now that historians are tired. <laughs> tired. <laughs> I think the greatest tweet that's happened in the, uh, in the last week has been uh, whoever it was who opened a Twitter account on January the 8th or something with uh, the photograph, which is Donald uh, <laughs> Trump's face with a false moustache on. And it's called, the, the account's called John Barron. And it says, hello, I'm just an ordinary man. It's nice to join you here. <laughs> and that tweet has done something like, oh, it's, it, it's incredible. It's something like 3 million retweets or something ridiculous, or certainly 3 million likes in like four days from a flat account from the first tweet that person ever did. Well, would anyone like some more good news? Yes, please. please. Have you ever needed to call in a plumber or builder but thought you'd rather not have a random guy in your home? Yeah. Mm. Well, as of March the 15th, a not-for-profit National Register of Tradeswomen will exist so that you can find local tradeswomen for your odd jobs around the home. The register was thought up by Hattie Hassan, the founder of Stopcock's Women Plumbers, who grew up in a home affected by domestic abuse and wanted women facing similar challenges to feel safer when they were inviting tradespeople into their homes. So if you would like to register or use the service in the future, you can find it online at registeroftradeswomen.com. I can vouch, very much vouch Mm. for Hattie because she was indeed my plumber when I was up in Halifax and she was excellent. It's hard to find Stopcock sometimes because their emails kept getting blocked. But it's an excellent name for a women's plumbers. Yeah. A little extra good news for me Jesus, too. Jesus, we're lousy with it this week, Mickey. Lousy with good news. I know. So I even I had some more and I thought, it's too much. <laughs> we can't. <laughs> Our listeners will be like, this isn't standard issue. But it is standard issue. And the extra good news for me, the subject around it does remain serious and horrific. So, you know, be a little bit reassured there. As the domestic abuse bill continues its way through Parliament, a new amendment to introduce a new non-fatal strangulation offence proposed by Tory peer Baroness Newlove on January the 5th and originally formulated by the Centre for Women's Justice looks set to become a specific standalone offence in England and Wales with a maximum sentence of seven years. It may well at this point end up being added to the police and sentencing bill rather than the domestic abuse bill, but either way, this is an important move by the government. Can I just ask, how the fuck is non-fatal strangulation not already an offence, like, in any context? I know, right? And it's very rarely recorded by the police as anything. And the stats are that if someone has attempted strangulation and non-fatal strangulation, they are eight times more likely to go on and murder their victim. Well, as I think I've said on this podcast before, if you if you uh, report a sex crime to the police, they do actually ask you as a matter of course. I think possibly a sex crime possibly also a domestic abuse crime they do ask you as a standard question whether or not the person um has ever tried to strangle you even in a sort of playful i'm very much making the uh, the little quotation marks there um way she's not listener she's just rolling around laughing <laughs> <laughs> she's still just thinking about meat crisps always <laughs> aren't always. we always more news next week well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when the list of how the pandemic is adversely affecting women more than men seems endless. And so, let's look at how women are twice as likely to take unpaid leave for caring duties because of schools closures. According to a survey carried out by a group of women's organisations across the UK, and that includes the Women's Budget Group and the Fawcett Society, 15% of mothers said they had to take unpaid time off work, compared with 8% of fathers. 
It's further proof, and I mean hollow laughter here as if proof were necessary, that the economic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic is falling disproportionately on women's shoulders. Now, I saw the news of that report in The Guardian. Well done that publication for highlighting this inequality, right? Well, yeah, and yet the same paper ran the headline, Men play with gender norms in lockdown with the return of man bun. (laughs) While sweeping generalisations never helped anyone, fact, maybe some of those men playing with gender norms want to stop fussing with their hair and get working on some of the care. And sure, it's a light-hearted piece about how men not being able to access hairdressers means their hair is growing, as hair does. But I didn't get this feminist killjoy badge for nothing. So it's also worth noting that women comprise 89% of the currently economically fucked hair and beauty industry in the UK. That's the second time they've done something about man buns in lockdown as well. Because when I pitched a piece at them about being in lockdown on your own, and then I heard nothing back, and then I that very weekend I saw how lockdown has taught me I'm not defined by my man bun. I was absolutely <laughs> livid. Imagine yeah. actually thinking you are defined by your man bun mm. as well. The thing is, it's not like they don't have stuff to write about at the moment either, is it? You know, like their newspapers, they should be pretty busy, shouldn't they? Do you think it's like you can't see the woods for the trees? They can't see the news for all the news? I suppose they're, you know, like everyone, I guess they're searching for um, something light-hearted and playful uh, <laughs> to write about. I, I would just like, also like to point out to our listeners that both of my colleagues are sporting a lady bun and nobody has brought it up yet. Thanks for noticing, Hannah. Yeah, thank you. I was waiting for the article in The Guardian. Where's The Guardian's <laughs> article on that? Exactly <laughs> that. Exactly I want someone that. to write about how I never wash my hair anymore. Anyone? Anyone? I am joined on the Zoom by nanochemist, head of public engagement at Digital Science, trustee of the Royal Institution, and long-time friend of the show, Dr. Suze Kundu. Suze, hello. Hello, Mickey. Let's talk science. So science has very much been in the news recently, particularly over the past 12 months. And a lot of the time it has come under the banner of heroes and indeed from the mouth of our prime minister, miracles. How has that felt as a scientist? It's been an interesting time. I think when it comes to a crisis, you have to say that any expert is a hero if they're fundamentally trying to make the world a better place or even, you know, in in something like this, just keep it ticking along, you know, whether it's our delivery drivers, our bin collectors, um, the people that are keeping our shelves stocked in the shops or the teachers working all of the hours pivoting to online teaching and learning. Every one of them is, of course, a hero. When it comes to science, generally speaking, people go into science because they want to make a positive difference to people's lives, whether that is creating energy that we consume that's minimally polluting or whether it's creating, you know, any kind of medicine, even for something as basic as period pain, you know, that's not only effective, but it's cheap enough to make. It can be deployed all across the world. You know, you you want to, to make a positive difference to the world. I think in something like this, of course, there are heroes and we have to give a huge shout out to the nurses and doctors working on the front line, all the GPs that are still working from home to try and keep us all safe and well, all Mm -hmm. the pharmacists that are going out of their way to do deliveries to people's homes, making sure everyone is still okay. But of course, yes, we do need to give the scientists a shout out too. 
they are heroes in their own ways. You know, they're working through a pandemic. They're regularly having to test themselves for COVID. They're putting themselves on the line here. And all of that is incredibly heroic. And for that, I think we're all incredibly grateful. When it comes to miracles, though, (laughs) is it a miracle that we have a vaccine? I'm going to say no. Um, The pandemic has given the public, I think, a long overdue glimpse into how research really works, albeit in a situation that's been um, catalyzed by a, a global crisis. I think all research is the result of a lot of bloody hard work, quite frankly, from people across the world. Mm -hmm. So I like to think of research outputs as these kind of the the very tiny top tip of an iceberg. And all of that research output, whether it's a vaccine, whether it's a wonder drug, it sits on top of this huge iceberg of foundational science and science that came before it that is done by people across the world. It's not always novel. And so I think when we talk about a miracle, it somewhat does all of this foreground work that kind of that prior art a real disservice because it's not a miracle it is testament to not just the immunologists and the virologists but the chemists the physiologists the engineers that are creating this process chain through which we can make vaccines the the logistical experts that can work out how we deploy these vaccines the epidemiologists that are working out the priority groups that we need to vaccinate first all of these people have an impact on this so to say that something is a miracle it makes it sound like somebody kind of found it under a rock or something and wow isn't this great and actually no it's not it's through hard work determination and some epic collaboration as well I've got to ask how hard has it been for people to keep doing the science and I think by the way I talk people will realize that I'm not a scientist but yeah to keep doing the science under the conditions that the pandemic and of course lockdown has kept us under It very much depends on the type of science. I think one thing that has been incredibly refreshing is that many different disciplines have realised that they could pivot to an online way of working quite easily. This obviously falls apart when you talk about very practical lab work. (laughs) I know a friend of mine, Dave Briggs, is working at the Francis Crick Institute actually on some of this vaccine stuff. And he is having to get regularly tested for COVID just so that he can make the journey, you know, into work to make sure that he is safe. Um, One of my best friends, Danny Kerwin, is a, a doctor and she's doing a PhD as well as working on the front line at St. George's. She's, again putting herself on the line here but having to kind of keep getting tested regularly and everything to make sure that she's okay that the people that she's living with won't um, be exposed to anything in any way so it's been difficult I think one good thing that has come out of this also is the fact that a lot of conferences for example have pivoted to an online format and this has done wonders in breaking down barriers to inclusion when you think about the geographical issues that people may have traveling from faraway countries the funding that's required for that there could be visas and other bits of red tape that they have to go through to try and travel to a different country to share their research. There could just be cultural issues that prevent them from going to certain countries. Mm-hmm. For example, if they're you know, an LGBTQIA person, maybe it's a country that is not culturally accepting of, of them and who they are, and that could then put them at risk. So there's lots of reasons why people can't attend things in person. What has been brilliant is that actually the conferences that I've attended and the conferences that we've been putting on have had this global inclusion and global reach. 
And I think that's been a really wonderful thing about it. The downside, however, so um, the, the tech research company that I work for, Digital Science, have done some research to look at how this has affected different types of people that would normally be publishing work. And the slightly tragic thing about this, but possibly unsurprising, is that the pandemic has disproportionately affected women. Oh, yeah. Women are bearing the brunt of childcare, of homeschooling. And I know that a lot of of people these days are far more equal in the way that they divide that workload. Um, If they're a heterosexual couple between the man and the woman, and that's great. And I know that men are really trying to do their bit. But there are some things that do just fall to women, whether it is the kids or whether it's older people that they need to care for. There's just an awful lot to do. And unfortunately, that has disproportionately affected the number of research publications that women have been able to, um, to to publish in at least in 2020. This gets even worse when you start to think about intersectional issues. So women of certain cultures are, you know, they're, they're seen as being the ones that have to be responsible for the family mm-hmm. in any kind of crisis. And so immediately all of that time is being taken away from them. And so that has been a real problem. There have been some positives. Again, um, the company that I work for, Digital Science, create a whole bunch of tools that try and support people to continue working collaboratively, globally. And so we've created and really kind of um, developed better ways of, of using the tech that we have, whether it is discovering research, whether it's collaboratively writing papers, whether it is just sharing that and disseminating that information or better understanding the impact of things. I'm quite glad that, you know, tech is playing quite a positive role in this as well, in trying to help people continue in unprecedented times. And if you have that on your bingo card, take a drink now. (laughs) Whenever there is something that's exciting in science, like the vaccine, it might not be a miracle, but it's very, very exciting. There is always a backlash. And even some ostensibly sensible people I know have shown a bit of reluctance around the vaccine. Not me, by the way. Get that survival juice in my arm as soon as you're done with the (laughs) 40-odd million people ahead of me in the queue. I wondered, have you got any words of reassurance you can pass on to anyone who might feel a bit on the fence about it? I will say this. I am not an immunologist. I'm not a virologist. I am just a scientist that tries to better communicate science and engage the public with science. All of the tests that have been done are rigorous. The the vaccines have been tested for safety. The majority of vaccines that we take are not going to be 100% effective, and that's because humans are brilliant and complicated things. But the thing is that they have been tested for any adverse harm and adverse reaction to people. Mm -hmm. So even if for some reason you were in that tiny percentage of people for whom it's not effective, it's still so important that we all take this vaccine because in doing so, more people within our population are going to be protected. And, And the sooner we can achieve that, the sooner we can start to get over this because the fewer people that that little bug can infect the better it just won't have a chance of jumping from person to person and doing its thing and that's positive for everyone i think one thing i have found a little bit disheartening and it's certainly a sign of the times is um we were chatting about this because we always matter just before we actually started recording (laughs) this about some people that we saw on Twitter saying that they'd rather wait for the English vaccine because they don't want this this Pfizer vaccine. And you have to kind of say, it's again, it's this iceberg of research. There is going to be 
no vaccine, no medical treatment out there that is exclusively English or any other nationality because all of the best research is done globally collaboratively. I just think that given that this pandemic has indiscriminately affected everyone across the world, you would just hope that any kind of response to that would be equally collaborative, that we would start to realise, actually, we're all the same, you know, it's all fine. There are some differences, but we should celebrate those differences and learn. To those people that are kind of thinking, I'll just wait for the English one, you'll be waiting an awfully long time. So maybe just just go have it. It'll be fine. It'll all be fine. (laughs) If I was a betting woman, I would put money on those same people really enjoying a German lager, not being bothered about the Bolivian marching powder and, you know, being a bit like those anti-vaxxers you see that don't have any frown lines. Interesting. Quite. Quite. No comment. No comment. And I'm not going to mention the B word either. So yes, it's all fine. (laughs) So homeschooling has also very much been in the news. So I have to make a confession. I wasn't ever really into science, which is so frustrating as a grown up, sort of grown up and looking back and looking around (laughs) me and knowing how much it's just it's just everywhere all the time. Everything is science but I never fell in love with it. And I guess there will be a lot of people like me out there with kids, but at the same time, having to show enthusiasm, interest, some sort of understanding of science to help their kids learn. So I wondered if you had any tips, particularly as science, as I recall it, also involves a lot of non-domestic equipment. So how do you teach science at home? A good question. I think often this kind of... um this feeling about science or any subject relates back to how you were taught in school and I I really feel for teachers they're terribly Mm under-resourced I think um, maybe back in our day when we were younger people could get away with not having such an engaging teaching style perhaps if that was the case I think a lot of people have sort of negative um, connotations associated with science or certainly ambivalent you know not positive What I would say is cast aside any preconceived notions of what science is and go on a journey of learning with your kids or the kids that you're caring for. I think some people are constantly trying to make science fun in quite a forceful way. And I think this puts people off a little bit because they start to wonder about why we're all being so pushy about it. You know, mm-hmm. you must love science. Science must be fun. And they may think, well, actually, it's quite it's quite dull. But if you go on this journey of understanding science, underpinning the things you already love, whether it's your cool new football shoes or it's your new PS5 controller, not that anyone ever has one of those, um, <laughs> all of this stuff is is just inherently fascinating it doesn't need to be fun because it is fascinating and then it becomes fun to learn about so I'd say the one thing that is great about homeschooling is that you have a bit more scope I think at least particularly with younger kids that may not have decided on their opinion of science yet um, you can let them experiment and you can let them be wowed by discoveries that they can really own themselves, things that they have done through some kind of experiment where they are the ones that have done the work and they're seeing the results, they're seeing the differences. And if you don't know why those differences exist, that's fine because that is literally science. (laughs) I don't know everything about science. I know an awful lot about a very small area of science, but I have a curiosity to find out more. And I think that is what's important. 
I don't feel that te- that teachers should be able to say, you know, oh, I know the answer to this or this is the way it is. I think some of the best teachers I've had have sometimes said, you know what, you've come up with this really interesting question and I don't know the answer, but let's find out. Mm-hmm. So I would say to parents and homeschoolers out there as well, go on the journey with your kids. Let them be curious and let them find out and you can learn as well it's okay to say you don't know something because that's why there's a whole wealth of information out there for us all to discover and I think it's nice because you might be surprised answering all of those you know but why questions could actually start to spark a, a renewed interest in science and technology and engineering in a lot of adults as well at least I hope anyway obviously we're standard issue you're a woman you're Dr Suze Kundu so could you let us know where we're up to with women in STEM and girls in STEM what are the current stats well it ain't great um, as we were already saying women have been quite disproportionately affected by the pandemic mm-hmm. and of course the intersectional issues are far worse if we talk about girls in STEM to start with I don't know what will happen without A-level exams and GCSE exams so I think back in 2019 because these were the last A-level stats that I was able to get hold of because there haven't been any since then um, girls were outperforming boys at A-level in securing top grades and it was the first year that there were more girls taking A-level science than there were boys. So this was all very encouraging. As you know, there have been many, many initiatives to try and encourage girls to study science, technology, Mm -hmm. engineering, and math subjects. Whether they have been effective, we don't yet know, because a lot of these things require a huge culture change, and you need to do quite a, a longitudinal study to really see what has had a good impact and what has maybe been less effective. But It's looking positive in that there seems to be more of a renewed interest from girls to study science subjects. However, science is still not the most welcoming place that it could be. Mm -hmm. There's still an awful lot of bias within the research profession, within research culture. There are still many, many barriers to inclusion. So we have to kind of stop and think, is it responsible for us to be pushing girls into a career that is still going to be quite challenging for them. So I would say it is important because we do need everyone to to do science. We need science to be representative of society. So it is still good that we're getting girls into STEM and becoming women in STEM. What we need to keep doing is keep pushing for that culture change within the profession to make sure that we're identifying these barriers to inclusion. So that's something that Digital Science were one of the founding partners of the Research on Research Institute that launched back in September 2019. And what they're trying to do is look at the stats of research, how efficient it is, how effective it is, and how we can maximise these positive outputs. And in doing so, a huge part of this is about equality, diversity and inclusion. We're trying to work with a whole bunch of people across the world to identify where the barriers to inclusion are, whether it is in grant funding, whether it is in 
peer review, whether it is in the, the ways that people are being supervised, whether it is how we're rewarding excellence in research. And what we're trying to do is create recommendations to make these more equal and more inclusive so that we can retain people within science, technology, engineering and maths research. So there's still a long way to go. We're seeing some positive changes, but as soon as something like this comes along, this being this, she gestures about <laughs> herself, it's it's tricky. It is tricky because we fall back to a, a world where the, the traditionally more privileged people still manage to do the things that they need to do and want to do. And women and other underrepresented groups within research are disproportionately affected. So we need to keep working at it. Culture change takes a long time and it requires a literal global buy-in. But I really do feel that we are making progress. It's slow, but we are getting there. So it's great that we'll see more girls in STEM. I hope that the lack of A-level exams will not again disproportionately affect them I really hope that they manage to get into all of the courses that they want to do and I really hope that you know in the next sort of five ten years we see really positive changes within research culture uh, and we start to see those numbers kind of evening off a little bit. Oh absolutely because I guess with the current situation the the wild flailing arms and this that you just referred to the other big thing that's that's happening is that widening of the gap in education between rich and poor and of course you need kids from working class backgrounds getting into science as well because then it dictates what gets research that can help the kids generations below them it's yeah it's all interlinked yeah it's a hundred percent this yeah we we need any profession really especially one that is trying to help society to reflect society Mm -hmm. And research is still a very privileged game to be a part of. It really is. I still look around at the people that I was working with um, when I was doing my PhD and the number of people that were still being supported or had a safety net in the form of parents and family. Mm-hmm. It was huge. You, it's so difficult to work a, a part-time job alongside doing a research-intensive degree like that. And yet a lot of people having to do it. So how can we make it so that we can be more inclusive in how we manage things, in how we measure success, how we measure excellence? I think it's a really big problem. And I think research needs to kind of look a little bit more widely at some of the outreach that we're trying to do. But it's all very well to do do some outreach, you know, get kids in. And then what? And it's so difficult because we do get them all in here saying, it's great, look at all these role models. And then they get to university. And of course, they're looking around and it's the classic pale male stale situation. They can't identify with anyone. And the class thing is a huge thing as well. So how do we make sure that, that we are trying to have this representation within research? It'll take time. It does take time. We can't just kind of say, oh, okay, well, you know, all the poshos over there, if you can just kind of back away a bit. It's, it's not, people should be there on merit as well, you know, and we want to make sure that people feel that they are there on merit, that they're not there to fill a quota. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we need to make sure that the ways that we assess people are as inclusive as possible. Suze, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to, please? 
I am on Twitter at the ever professional at fun size Suze. It's because I'm a tiny chemist that does tiny chemistry, so I am fun size. Um, there's a whole bunch of resources as well that I would love to share if that's okay Please. to help all the homeschoolers and the what I like to call sci curious. Um, so <laughs> if you are into some fun experiments, as you said, I am a trustee of the lovely Royal Institution and they have a whole series of videos on their YouTube channel. So whether you're a big kid or a younger kid, get involved with those. There's something for everyone for every subject. Um, They also have a really great section called Experimental. The RI in that is written like the RI. You see what they did there. (laughs) Um, And that's been created by, among other people, Alam Shaha, who is one of my favorite um, science teachers and heroes of, of science teaching. And it's basically a bunch of resource packs where you can pick them up, do experiments at home, and you kind of know what to look out for um, the, the ingredients that you're going to need to take part in all these things and all of the stuff that you'll need basically what kind of key stage it relates to um, so I would definitely check that out he also has a book out which is Mr Shaha's Recipes for Wonder so it's all these amazing science Great experiments title. you can do at home there's a whole bunch of other things as well if you're missing the great outdoors um, my friend Hugh James has a website called Anturus they have a bunch of experiments where he goes to amazing places with his mates I did one of these expeditions we went up a volcano and we did science experiments and we did Skype in the classroom and we created again a bunch of resources for people to do some of these experiments at home and compare them to the things that we discovered on the volcano or on a glacier or in a river and all this stuff there's a whole bunch of other things I will tweet some stuff out uh, and you can you can all get involved yeah thank you as ever for chatting to us it was a gorgeous pleasure thank you for having me it's always lovely to hear you and see you I'm joined on the phone by Professor Pat Price of Imperial College London. Pat is a clinical oncologist. She's also the chair of Action Radiotherapy and the co-founder of the Catch Up With Cancer campaign and Radiotherapy for Life. Hello, Pat. That's quite a lot of strings to your bow. Yes, but they're all connected. Yes, that's true. But you are doing even more things at the moment because the Catch Up With Cancer campaign is a relatively new one, isn't it? Gosh, yes. Catch Up With Cancer was started with Craig Russell, who's the stepfather of Kelly Smith, who tragically died aged 31 from bowel cancer. You may remember her. She was on the You, Me and the Big C podcast with Deborah James. She had metastatic bowel cancer. Unfortunately, her chemotherapy was stopped during COVID. With her father, we set up the petition and the the campaign. In fact, as soon as the lockdown happened, first first lockdown now, in March, we realised that this was going to have massive implications for cancer patients. So we were right on this in early February. And then we were making a lot of noise in the media and with our politician friends and saying, gosh, we must do something about cancer. And then not much was being done. So we started the Catch Up With Cancer campaign because it's a big problem. So can you tell me a little bit, first of all, about what, in your opinion, needs to be done? What was it that you were concerned about? Well, I think it's because obviously we have a responsibility for cancer patients and treatment. Now, when we had the first lockdown, okay, fine, last March, if you can all remember that far back, there was the big concern about that it was going to be completely overwhelmed the health service. And essentially the health service stopped everything, got itself COVID ready. And that was brilliant, in fact. So that was great. And we were all signed up for that. That was fantastic and important. There was also at the time some data coming out of China where it started that perhaps during COVID 
and if people got COVID, that the cancer patients would actually suffer more with treatment. So we were thinking, gosh, you know, do we withhold treatment? Do we wait? You know, there was all these concerns about that. So do you mean that they were more clinically vulnerable to COVID because of the treatment they were having? A bit of both. Yeah. It was a bit, they may be more vulnerable to get COVID or the treatments that we were giving them, they may make them more vulnerable to COVID. So that was the data. And at the same time, we didn't have long it was going to last. So it seemed really sensible. We had a lot of guidelines out to pause cancer treatment, to prioritise it, this kind of thing. That was fine. And then as the weeks went on, you realised that this was going to be with us for a lot longer. And the data we were seeing very quickly was actually that a lot of cancer treatments could continue quite safely. So it was clear that you can't wait very long with cancer. Within about a month, it was quite clear that really we couldn't allow the cancer patients to not have their treatment and their pathway not be disrupted. And the whole point of view is that is, I know a lot of your uh, listeners will know, we always say, you know, you must present early, time is of the essence, you must get on with your cancer treatment, which is true, because as we know, cancers grow. And as they grow, they sometimes cause a lot more problems and can get to the stage when they spread and so are no longer curable. So time is absolutely of the essence. So, okay, first couple of weeks, that's fine. But after that, we thought, oh, my goodness. And it was really unfolding over those first few months. You could see with the cancer pathway completely disrupted, then what was going to happen to all these cancer patients? And for cancer, you have to present, you have to be diagnosed, you have to have your treatment plan and you have to have your treatment and you have to have your follow up and then you have to have more scans. So if you dismantle all of that, stop the screening, stop the diagnosis, stop the scanning, stop the outpatients, you can see it all falls apart. And also it's quite a complex system and multiple people involved. And to re-put that back together again is really, really difficult. So we then really got... There were days when I was really quite upset about it. You could see if we had people phoning us, they'd just had their cancer operations cancelled. What were they going to do? It was a mess. So instead of getting upset about it, you think, right, what can we do about it? So that's where we thought, right, we'll try and get some planning in, get some thinking in and encourage people to present and also really start saying we need to get on with cancer. And then we started the campaign because really by that time in June, July, the cancer services weren't getting back up to 100%. Although they were trying, it didn't seem to be fast enough. So we thought there was such a lot of people approaching us that we thought, right, we've got to get a campaign. And the campaign was really to collect all these stories and evidence and then say to government and senior NHS that we have to do something. And that's really, we have to take the cancer problem as seriously as the COVID problem, because at that time, it looked as though we were going to lose as many patients to cancer as there was to COVID. We also felt there was a real urgency because of this, and it really needed money putting in because of this backlog that was building up. So that was our plan in July. And OK, over the summer, things did get a bit better. Some things were getting there, but it still seemed the NHS senior management seemed to think they were hoping to get services back to normal by this March coming up. And we were horrified. We thought, ah, that's not quickly enough. And in fact, there was a select committee Jeremy Hunt ran and he estimated from all the evidence he's gathered that once the services were up to 100 percent, they'd then need to be going at 120 percent to catch up over two years. So we thought, ah, all these amazing frontline staff, they're exhausted. They're doing such a good job. You can't just turn around and say, hmm, now work 120 percent faster. So in September and October, we were really worried. And then, of course, it's all gone horridly wrong since then. 
because we've had these second waves, more people redeployed out of cancer. And now over the last few weeks, cancer operations are starting to be cancelled again. So we are right back to square one again. And we didn't catch up the first time. I mean, what you said there, obviously, time is of the essence with with something like cancer. You know, you said there that the select committee said 120 percent to catch up over two years. You don't really have two years, do you, if you're dealing with cancer? Correct. We don't have two years. We are already seeing in, by about September, October, we already had data from the lung cancer charities that they had lost a lot of lung cancer patients already in that time, March to the summer, who perhaps didn't present or couldn't get treatment. So, And then we are starting to see people presenting later with more advanced cancers. By October, we are seeing an increase in downgrades from curative to palliative. No, we... We should have tried to get those services back up and running by May, last May and June and protected them like we had to protect COVID patients and we had to protect accident and emergency. Of course, you expect if you have a road traffic accident, somebody's going to sweep you up and look after you. It should have been the same for cancer. So if you have cancer, there's a thing that you that can't wait and need sorting. And unfortunately, I think it's been put in the too difficult to deal with pile. It's kind of a triple whammy, really, isn't it? Because A, you're clinically vulnerable to COVID. I guess with or without the treatment, you're still clinically vulnerable. B, your treatment is potentially being stopped and therefore the cancer is progressing while you're not able to have that treatment. And C, people are not going to their GPs. They're not talking about the problems. They're not getting diagnosed. Yes, it's absolutely. And I think really, if we stand back from it, you know, it's an awful time for all of us, isn't it? Who's not going through complete misery, just being normal? Imagine then if you or your relatives got cancer and you say it'd been a late presentation or you can't get your treatment. I just can't think how unbearably awful that must be. I just had a baby at the end of the first lockdown in June. I'm not comparing that to having cancer, obviously, but basically my body's completely ruined after having her. There's all sorts of things wrong with me now. So not just for me, but also for her. It's a really difficult time to navigate the healthcare system. And I've found that I've had to be really quite sharp elbowed to get things going. I'm white middle class. I'm quite used to getting my sharp elbows out and having a push. For other people, that is not necessarily such an easy thing to do. You know, will there be another thing here where there's a disproportionate impact perhaps on on different demographics? Uh, completely. It's, it's COVID has thrown up all this, hasn't it? Basically, the haves and have more and the have-nots have less, which is so depressing. We already know that if you're socially and financially deprived, you have more risk of getting cancer in the first place. You have less access that you can make to healthcare anyway. You won't feel empowered to navigate and you'll be sharp-elbowed. And a lot of people have felt they were doing the right thing by staying at home and not presenting with their cancer symptoms. So all along, they're completely disadvantaged. A lot of people have just feeling that they shouldn't be in the hospital taking up time. We've tried to put out messages that people should be, but it's just another disadvantage, which is such a shame. Nobody wants cancer patients to be disadvantaged. Everybody you would speak to wants all cancer patients to be treated just the same and all cancer patients to be given the same priority as COVID patients. Because I do remember there was a point at which we were told, look, 
if you're ill, you need to go to the GP. Obviously, we're protecting the NHS, but do still go to the GP. And now it feels like that messaging has been rolled back a little bit. I got a text message from my my local NHS the other day saying, don't call for an ambulance unless it's an emergency. Now, obviously, we all know you're not supposed to call for an ambulance unless it's an emergency anyway. But the fact that they have to send messages like that feels to me, you would potentially read that and think, I mustn't bother the health service. So do you think that the messaging around this has been good, has been consistent? What do you think it's saying to people? Yes, I think the message about cancer has not been clear. And in fact, I think the wrong messages have been given out. If there's people saying, as the senior NHS said, we hope to get cancer services back up and running fully by next March, which is the year, you wouldn't feel there's any You'd be sort of thinking you're going to wait your turn and perhaps wait for your appointment. And if it doesn't come, they're going to get instead of the message that has to be that cancer is vitally important. And I think sometimes the message gets through, but I think it's a symptom of the message has been COVID. And of course, we need that message to be COVID. We need everybody to stay safe, to stay apart, all these sort of things. But now it's stay at home message, which is fine. And now there's a vaccine message, which is really important as well. But through all of this, there hasn't been the message that says cancer has to be treated urgently and it's still up and running. And I think that's partly because it hasn't been up and running. One of the things the government talks about a lot is the risk of the health service being overwhelmed. We have the daily, you know, very sad, tragic numbers of COVID deaths that are reported, which I I think at the time of recording stands at about 75,000, which is a huge amount, obviously. But then on top of that, because then there's all the people where COVID has been mentioned on the death certificate, but it's not necessarily the cause of death. And that's a bit higher than that number of 75,000. But then also, I imagine what we're going to see in a few months time when we compare the excess deaths of the last year to the year before they're going to be a lot higher and that will be all the other people who've been impacted by the problems that the NHS now faces is that what you would expect to see absolutely right and that you've you've hit the nail on the head there that's the fundamental problem there's international studies there's two been out and published now recently showing that for every four weeks delay in cancer treatment that's around 10% reduction in survival. Oh, my gosh. So we knew there were some modelling studies done in July. So, so that first four months of the first lockdown, they reckoned there'd be 35,000 extra cancer deaths, you know, that wouldn't have occurred. And that equates to 60,000 lost life years. That was just in the first four months. Imagine what it is now. And the important thing is that... Cancer patients, you know, nobody would tolerate a patient with COVID gasping for breath being left, would they? Of course not. Of course nobody would. Or somebody's had a road traffic accident. So of course you go to them to help. But the cancer patients, the trouble is they don't die immediately. Mm. They'll be dying now. They'll be dying next year. They'll be dying the year after. And they'll be dying quietly at home. And so we're not seeing it. Other international studies showing that the disruption that's been caused over this time, and this is not the recent one, has probably set cancer survival rates back 10 or 15 years. It's astonishing. And we can't get the people in charge of the money and the organisation of the bureaucracy to act on this, these data and see, because on the front line, we see it. And there's been denials, they've been saying it's fine, but really... They have to, it's it's like watching a slow motion car crash. There's all this piling up and piling up and piling up, 
where is it going? These patients are still getting cancer. There's probably about 50 to 100,000 cancers out there that we haven't diagnosed and we should have done over the last year. And some of those will no longer be curable. But these patients are not going to be big headlines. They're not going to be seen. They're going to be dying quietly at home. It's quite shocking and extremely sobering when you put it like that in those terms. And, you know, we, we hear in the news all the time that the massive, massive leaps that have been made in cancer treatment, in cancer survival rates in the last 10 to 15 years. They've been huge. And, and basically what you're saying is that, that those advances are at risk at the moment. Oh, well, completely. And the, the whole point is, this didn't have to be that way. If people can act, they can get a plan and they can aggressively get onto this part that needs doing. And we've presented solution to them. There's lots of innovative, innovative ways we could do to catch up with cancer, all these things we could do. When we talk about the NHS being overwhelmed, there is obviously an immediate risk. The message we're getting is that basically critical care is pretty much at capacity at the moment. And you're right. And in fact, things have have changed so much over the last four weeks. It is uh, honestly frontline out there. It is awful. There is, I've seen the data, some hospitals are up to 60% of their beds are occupied by COVID patients. It is massive. Frontline staff saying it's worse than last time. The patients themselves, some of them are doing are better because the treatments are better, mm. but numbers are in there. And so, of course, we haven't got enough staff now, so we have to cancel things. Back in the first lockdown, it was a case of we closed a lot of activity to concentrate on this, but there was physical capacity mm. in people. But now there is just nowhere to put people. You know, it really is. There is no room at the inn at all. So, the, you know, the people, there isn't enough staff. And remember, staff, the frontline staff, I don't know how they do it. They've, they have been going at this since last March. They must be exhausted. And now, of course, some people are actually getting COVID or being off and self-isolating. We haven't got enough staff. But remember, we went into this crisis with an under-resourced health service, without enough staff. We were towards the bottom of the League of Cancer before we went in. We'd had underfunding in certain areas like radiotherapy for decades. And we've been screaming and saying, you need more resource for workforce, equipment, less bureaucracy. You can do this. You can be as good as Europe. You don't have to be at the end. This was before we went in. And so now, where do we go from here? And the whole point, as you said earlier on, this is going to go on. Last night on Newsnight, they were saying that the chief medical officers are thinking whatever happens, we great, vaccine, fantastic, we can get a way out of this. But even next winter, we'll probably be having to do some measures as well. So cancers, it's not as though, oh, if we can just keep going till the vaccine's there, it'll all be all right. It won't. I've had some people say to me now they think it's so bad with cancer, we'll never get it. So not only have we got to get it right for the patients now, we've got to get this right over the next five years where there will be COVID issues around the place and then get back up to where we were. And of course, then cancer patients deserve this. If you've got an awful disease where there was no cure and that was it, you can come to terms with that. If you've got an awful disease and there is a cure and you just haven't got it because somebody didn't put the money in or the priority, you'd be very upset. So we can do this. So we just have to do it. There's an immediate risk to the NHS. But I think when you think about things a bit more long term, the Conservative government have, you know, since 2010, the government has to put in a certain amount of funding each year to ensure that the NHS 
just stays the same, right? And they have not even been meeting those financial commitments. The one good thing about COVID is that I think it really has shone a light on the health service and how badly we need it and how, you know, what, what an excellent, excellent resource it is. Unless the NHS gets the funding it needs going forwards, what kind of long-term risk is there? What kind of shape are we going to be in at the end of all this? Yes, you're quite right, because I think, and, and, and obviously I'm talking as a cancer doctor, it's, I, I'm apolitical and it's, I don't want to shed blame. All I can do is clarify what is going on and try and find some solutions. So I'm starting from that point. The health service at the moment, we would see, has not got enough money for the things that need to be done clearly. There is not enough workforce. Everybody will agree with that. There isn't. Now, there's a lot of money going into the NHS. Clearly, if we keep doing the same things the same, we're going to get the same result. So a lot of us feel there's a lot of bureaucracy in there, whatever it be, be it internal markets, be it whatever. There's a lot of money in there that when I started as a consultant 32 years ago, we didn't have. As a consultant 32 years ago, I made the decisions. It was on my neck. And we got things done and we cut through things and got on with it. Now there are layers upon layers upon layers. Now, obviously, there is that to look at, whether all those layers are needed, what we can do. So like everything, it's like Tesco's, it's like BT, any organisation. Now it's COVID, it's accelerated everything, saying, whoa, what were we doing? <laughs> you know, what are the things that we shouldn't be doing now? And what are the things we absolutely doing? And now is the time to change and go on to the important, crucial things. It's about how we go forward with a fixed amount of money. And obviously, we're going to have less money going forward. But then we have to be sharp. Rutherford, the chap who won the Nobel Prize years ago, he said, when you have no money, you think. This is absolutely what we need to do. Everybody needs to do that in their home, in their work, everything. So what's the future? We have to be smart. We have to be sharp. We have to prioritise. We have to go digital. We have to do all those things. Certainly for radiotherapy, which is my own area, that's a, a not very well-known part of cancer treatment. It's actually needed in 50% of cancer patients. So as one in two people will get cancer, that means one in four people will have to have radiotherapy at some time in their lifetime most people never even heard of it. So radiotherapy is an outpatient treatment using high dose x-rays, which has transformed in the last 10 years with IT software imaging. I can now be planning treatment for a patient the other side of the world with fantastic imaging and precision, amazing treatments. We've got one, one group now in Northumberland. They can treat lung cancer with one 20 minute outpatient treatment. Wow. wow. All of these wow. digital solutions. These are just what we need in COVID. Outpatient, not much time. Everything can be remote. People can be working at home. This is amazing. There is amazing treatments out there. But we just have to recognise it and do it and put the funding in. So we've put forward some funding and a plan with the comprehensive spending review and now hopefully going to the budget saying, look, there are some solutions. It doesn't take a lot of money. It's very easy to do. And then you will not only save money, it's much cheaper treating patients with radiotherapy or other things that are cheap, much cheaper to cure patients than not cure patients. And so there is a lot we can do. What should listeners be doing if they are worried about their health? I guess the message is go to your GP. Yes, I think there's a clear message about the GP. Now, OK, everybody out there is scared at the moment. We're all scared of everything. You know, just accept it. We're all scared. We're all terrified of everything. But there is a way of reducing some of this fear. Things we've got to look out for are things like things that are not normal in your body, a lump, a, a pain that won't go away, a cough that won't go away, passing blood or anything, anything like that. I think, whoa, that's not normal. 
Now, look, don't be worried about it, because remember, contact your GP, even if it's only a phone appointment or whatever it is, get somebody, talk to them. Now, remember, most things, the GP can reassure you it's nothing, right? But then if you're that small number of people who the GP thinks, well, I think I need to send you for an urgent cancer referral, just remember, even if that's you, you still have a nine out of 10 chance of when you get to the hospital, it's nothing. So just think about that. All those people who then show up are either reassured immediately or are reassured when they get to the hospital. Great. One less thing to worry about. Fantastic. We, we need to have one less thing to worry about. Absolutely. And then remember, if you are unfortunate, it is that. Well, then great. You've probably caught it early. And in which case it can be cured. And remember, you're doing your bit for the health service by doing that. Because the more people we can get early, the more people we can treat, then you're dealt with, then you're done, then you're okay. So you can do your bit like that. And I think the immediate bit at the moment, we'd have to say the hospitals, it's so busy in there at the moment. Encourage everybody you know, stay home, stay safe. You know, really, the the, the messaging, I was so pleased with that lockdown because the hospitals absolutely need it. So it won't be forever. So that's where you can do your bit as well. And I think the other thing is perhaps collectively we should be able to do more to encourage the government to catch up with cancer. We've got to say it's a priority. We started the, if you go to change.org and the catch up with cancer campaign, 370,000 people have already signed that petition and they can leave messages as well about tell us your story, tell us who, let's get that to a million. Let's be able to go to Boris Johnson and say there's a million people that really care about this. Also, you go to our website, there's a lovely video for, for Christmas with patients on it, Victoria Derbyshire's on it, really saying about how much it means and it just it shows it's really important and you can donate or you can write to your MP we need to collectively say to the government as a nation hey cancer matters let's get it up the priority do we need a Marcus Rashford for cancer we probably do so if anybody out there could be our Marcus Rashford for us for cancer please get in touch because we need to move the dial on this. Well, Marcus Rashford, if you're listening. Pat, where can we find the website so that we can donate and pledge support? The website is www.radiotherapyforlife.org forward slash catch up with cancer. Also, if you go to change.org, catch up with cancer there's the petition there you can leave your story there and sign sign that petition the more numbers we get on that the better you play ball like a girl go on do one kid Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That time of the week where we are handing out red cards left, right, and centre as we discuss all things women's sport. That's right. I'm talking about what the media have been calling Dubai Gate, or arguably the first major public fallout with women's football. I'm going to say arguably because you know Enya Luko and Mark Sampson and all that, but perhaps unsurprisingly, the vast majority of the British public seem way more pissed off about this than they did about racism. But hey ho. What they're referring to, in case you've not seen it all over social media and in news reports in the last week, is a trip some WSL players took to Dubai over the Christmas and New Year period. Those players, many of them England players as well, were from Man City, Man United and Arsenal. We know this happened because one of the players involved posted some snaps of their fun times on Instagram, though players have not officially been named by their clubs, nor, in the case of Arsenal and Manchester City at least, have apologies been made. 
So what should they be apologising for? Did they break the government's rules? Well, no, because the Arsenal players who were under Tier 4 rules at the time claimed they were able to make the journey as a business trip. And I just want to say right now that, in my opinion, that is a real dick move. The others were under Tier 3 rules and given permission by their clubs. And I think it's fair to say, while many of us were making agonising decisions about whether or not we would see our families, who we've not seen all year, even if we were technically allowed to... It's really, really tone-deaf from both City and United. Casey Stoney, the Manchester United manager, has at least had the good grace to take responsibility, say that with hindsight, she shouldn't have agreed to this and apologised for her part in it all. But it wasn't just a case of the players being dickheads. Basically, as a result of this trip, a couple of the players involved did indeed catch coronavirus, forcing them and teammates to self-isolate and resulting in the cancellation of four WSL games last week, and that's four out of six games, so a lot. The news has led to widespread condemnation by pundits, fans and other players in the league even, which you can absolutely understand, especially the latter, whose work was actually impacted on because of the stupidity of a few people. And if you want my opinion, yes it's absolutely maddening to see such irresponsible behaviour and while our government are 100% a band of incompetent fuckwits who've mishandled the whole sorry Covid ordeal the message to stay at home if you possibly can over the last few months has not been subtle I think that male footballers who've broken Covid rules and actually have you know properly broken Covid rules have been met with similar levels of public ire possibly not quite as much But what I found really interesting in the discussion around it all is the genuine surprise that it's been met with. The consensus sort of seems to be, we expected better from you. And on one hand, I kind of understand this. I think a really common view regarding women's football is that we have an opportunity here to do football properly, in inverted commas. Money's ruined the men's game, according to many, so let's make women's football a sort of purer kind of setup, not tarnished by greed and fundamentally too many fucking details on its players' designer genes. And that is another case of just because you can doesn't mean you should. Women's footballers are, I think, held to a higher moral standard here. It's almost like people are surprised that women can be arseholes, even though the continued Twitter presence of Julia Hartley Brewer tells us all otherwise. I think if you look at pretty much any aspect of society, women are expected to be fairer, kinder, more compassionate and empathetic. I'm obviously not suggesting that we should all be arseholes. Personally, I'd prefer it if no one was an arsehole. But I think it's a mistake to put these players on some kind of moral pedestal. Women need to be allowed to make mistakes. And I think in this case, it actually undermines the continued efforts to pursue equality in the game. Friend of the podcast, Dr. Carrie Dunn, author of a squillion books about women's football, including The War of the Lionesses, has some really interesting things to say about this on her twitter feed which is at carrie sparkle and on this week's arsenal women Arsecast podcast is a wonderfully punnable word isn't it about how women are pedestaled in this way basically because society still rejects the idea of women as a professional and b competitive athletes I usually try to end on some good news, but good news has proven challenging this week because in rugby, the Women's Six Nations tournament, due to begin on February the 6th, the same weekend as the men's, has been pushed back until April. Covid is cited as the reason. The men's tournament appears to be going ahead as planned. And you can't see me, but I am shrugging. That's all for me this week. If you've any thoughts on any of this, you can catch me on Twitter where I am at InspiraGen. Welcome to Rated or Dated, Hannah Dunleavy. Hannah yes. Dunleavy. Sorry, full, full name. I feel like you might be in trouble because, you know, you're one of the kids. And what film did you make us watch this week? 
This week, we watched Rebel Without a Cause, released in the US in October 1955, a month after the death of its star, James Dean, and in the UK in January 1956, making it 65 years old. Took some pretty high-level maths for us to work that out, I'm telling <laughs> and, you. And indeed, the calculator on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> it seems necessary in a section called Rated or Dated that I point out that Rebel Without a Cause was considered pretty revolutionary in its day. Firstly, in its subject matter, representing, as it did, America's preoccupation with the newly invented concept of the teenager. It takes its title, but has no other connection to a book by psychiatrist Robert M. Lindner, Rebel Without a Cause, The Hypno-Analysis of a Criminal Psychopath. And in portraying disaffected middle-class youth, it's in the same wheelhouse as classic 50s novels Catcher in the Rye and On the Road. Rebel Without a Cause was also revolutionary in a technical sense, and that actually might be putting it mildly. It was described at the time as representing, quote, a quantum leap forward in the artistic and technical evolution of a format. Director Nicholas Ray used the then new Cinescope format, something enabled by Dean's bankable star present, but it is strange to see him in such rich, dense colour, given his image has in the last 60 years existed almost entirely in black and white. The film received mixed reviews at the time. In fact, the only thing critics could agree on was that they loved Dean's performance, so you may be surprised to learn that it wasn't him who received an Oscar nod, but his two teenage co-stars, Natalie Wood and Sal Mineo. Nicholas Ray was also nominated, but everyone went home empty-handed. Before I get to the plot and whether you guys liked it or not, I just want to go back to something Jim was saying last week about a curse and say, I see your dangerous minds, and I raise you rebel without a cause. As I mentioned earlier, Dean died in a car crash before the film was released. (laughs) Ten years later, Nick Adams, who plays Chick, died of an apparent drugs overdose in 1976. Sal Minio was stabbed to death in a street robbery. And I can't really explain how Natalie Wood died in 1981, because A, legal reasons, and B, no one knows. Well, someone knows, but C, A... So, starting off with, I had never seen this before. Had either of you seen Rebel Without a Cause? No. I had never seen it before. Three youngsters meet in a police station where they have all been taken for separate youthful hijinks, some of which are considerably worse than others, which the film suggests are the result of bad parenting. They start hanging out together, and as a result, several people end up dead, and a chicken has a really traumatic experience. (laughs) So, guys, what did you think? I didn't like it. I know it's a classic, but I didn't like it. I've got to say, the the performances are powerhouse. And while that melodramatic, over-the-top, very actorly way of acting now feels incredibly dated, yeah. they are they're super watchable. I think all the performances are super watchable. And actually, Natalie Wood, I thought, was amazing. And I was surprised to learn that she was only a teenager. She was only 17 or 16 when they filmed this. And Hannah pointed out, because I was like, oh, look, Dangerous Minds kids looked really old. Look at these guys. But it was just maybe the time, because they looked a lot, lot older. Mm. But, yeah, I just I just found the whole idea of the fact that, that his dad doesn't beat his mum up means that his dad's a really weak role model. Very problematic. <laughs> yeah, it has his dad in a penny at one point. The most frilly, flowery, whatever penny, because we are supposed to think that he has been 
utterly, utterly emasculated by wearing a penny. And the whole fact that James Dean's character, the you know, very inventively called Jim, is kind of goaded into this bad behaviour whenever anyone calls him a chicken. Mm. It's supposed to relate to the fact that he sees his dad as really henpecked. Yeah. And I, I really struggled to get over that, actually, and found it quite boring as well. But I've, I've worked on for a while now. It's quite the 24 hours. Yeah, it's like it really all is, over yeah. 24 hours as well. They're all assholes, really, aren't they? Just really unlikable people. Mm-hmm. And, and Isn't I guess that some all of the class teenagers? It's weird because, well, yeah, I don't know. Say so Plato, I think you're probably... You know, you you kind of feel maybe a bit more sympathy for than the others because his parents are absent. But then, like, Plato fucking shoots a load of puppies to begin with. (laughs) Just like, well, I'm sorry. I just, I can't be sympathetic towards you anymore. I don't care if your parents are there or not. You've just shot a load of puppies, you little shit. Oh, it's definitely at the start of a road at the end of which lies serial killing. Definitely. Yeah, there's there's nothing really redeemable about any of them. The the themes are really, as Mickey says, really toxic. The idea that like he has to be a twat because his dad's actually quite a nice guy is just like ridiculous. I can't really understand where that even came from. I don't even understand if we're supposed to be like, oh yeah, right, okay, yeah, I can kind of see what your what your problem is, Jim. Well, I don't think we're supposed to be anything, Jen, because we're watching it sixty five years after the fact. All oh, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the point at the time. Yeah. Was the point at the time? Are you supposed to be sympathetic towards him, or are you supposed to think he's a bell end? You're supposed to be scared. I think America was scared of teenagers because teenagers, well, like I say, they were a relatively new invention, and and America mm. became really, really just terrified of its children well there was a thing in the 50s about um teenage delinquency there was a specific concern about teenage delinquency which is obviously in that like historical time which is obviously what this is about and it kind of like it does come up again throughout history so it is like a a recurring theme Mm. the characters themselves find it quite bizarre there's that bit where Jim and Buzz are talking before they do the thing where they've got a couple of stolen cars and they drive them towards the edge of a cliff. Whoever bails first is a chicken. And because Buzz gets his coat stuck on the car door, he can't actually bail at all and he goes over the edge and he dies. But before all of that drama, which is such a ridiculous thing to do, they're talking and Buzz says, do you know what, I quite like you. And Jim says, Mm. so why are we doing this? And he says, well, we've got to do something. And they're just bored that's the cause, isn't it, in yeah. the title? They're just really, really bored. Having watched this now, I feel like there's so much other stuff that I like about that sort of that aimless teenage stuff that I realise must draw stuff or has drawn stuff from this. Like Freaks and Geeks. Like Freaks and Geeks, Dazed and Confused. To me, the thing that's really jarring is that you get in this situation where you've got kids doing things that are, I mean, arguably incredibly dangerous like that, but also like having a knife fight. Mm. But at the same time, they're calling each other poop heads, which is like this odd <laughs> juxtaposition between the sort of what it's trying to portray and then the sensibilities of the audience that is going to watch. That it just speaks to me about how mad America are places that it would rather have death on screen than the word shit. Along that line as well. So the director, Ray ended up having an affair, in inverted commas, with Natalie Wood, who was 16 when they were filming, and he was 43. And you're just like, yeah, why are the youth fucked up, Ray? I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? You can't see my face on (laughs) the podcast, but it's not a good one. It was horrified. Um, Shall we talk about James Dean briefly? Because, obviously, this was one of only three films he, he made. 
I actually have seen the other two, and I would say the other two are much, much better. Although I haven't watched them for a while, so who knows? He got um, Oscar nominated for the other two, didn't he? Giant is the best one. Yeah, I mean, what do we think of Dean's performance? But also of, of him as a, the, the face that never aged and graced a, a million, well, probably much more than a million girls, teenage girls' bedroom walls. And imagine teenage boys' walls as well, and mm. they got away with it. Because there is that thing with, with Sal, Minio's character, Plato, that maybe it's budding homosexuality and he's well, got uh, a massive crush on James Dean's character, right? It, interestingly, Nick Adams and Sal Minio both were apparently bisexual and possibly gay. Neither of them were out. Actually, as was James Dean rumoured to be, that has been blamed for the fact that both of their careers never took off, which is obviously sad. Fucking horrible, um, yeah. Yeah. But going back to Dean's performance, it's it's very of the time, isn't it? And, it, yeah. you know, the time wasn't into naturalism, which we're so much more used to now. Mm. And I think because this is the first time I've watched Rebel Without a Cause... To me, it felt very Brando, even though Brando's performances like that probably came later. I know he was in the wild one, which was 53, but it's more, it's how I imagine him in his Tennessee Williams role. It's that kind of... It's on the waterfront, like maybe about 55, isn't it? I think. Mm, so it's but a similar like, era. He was, wasn't he, he was like Stanislavski. He was the person who started to change, Brando did, how people acted. But yeah. apparently James Dean was really method as well. And, you know, when I read a story and the bit where they were doing the knife fight, people did actually get hurt and Dean got cut and the director or assistant director shouted cut to stop it because his actor was hurt. Mm. Dean lost his shit and was like, don't you say cut. I say cut. This was brilliant. We were really into it. And he, he broke his hand when he was punching the police desk because he got really into it. He got drunk before the scene. Mm. So it's very method. And yet it's still read to me as a watcher 65 years on, as too mannered, too actorly. It, I could see why it was such a powerhouse performance, but it didn't didn't do it for me at all. Mm. Yeah, it's very over the top, isn't it? It's very, um, like you say, it's not. there's nothing sort of naturalistic ab- about it. He reminds me of James Franco, or perhaps it's the other way around. Interesting. Mm. I can see that now you said it. Looks-wise... Sort of looks wise, but also in what Franco does, clearly, is is to a certain extent. It wouldn't surprise me if, to a certain extent, some of it, when he was younger, was a homage to James Dean. Because, oh, yeah, I think you're spot yeah. on there. Yeah. There is a really interesting storyline, I thought, to do with Natalie Wood's character, Judy, that is the reason that she's seen as a delinquent, but really isn't addressed very much, because obviously this is very much the boys' film, it's Dean's mm. film. And that is that she is acting out because her dad Mm. doesn't like her giving him affection now. And it's like, well, is that because he started to see his daughter in a sexual way? Or he's he's very much aware of the fact that she's becoming a sexual being? That, to me, would have been a much more interesting film. It's a very uncomfortable storyline, isn't it? That one. It's... Well, when she gives him a kiss and he punches her in the face. Throws her out the house. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. It's, it is interesting. But yeah, I found that quite an uncomfortable strand to the piece. Oh, Jen, you massive poop head. <laughs> no, you're right. It is uncomfortable. I just wanted to say it. <laughs> I'll take it. It's fine. 
As ever, I just have to mention a Sopranos link. So the only bit of Rebel Without a Cause I was really aware of is the end scene because Christopher Moltisanti does it in his acting for writer's class and he does it so, so well that he ends up crying and the audience of his fellow actors for writer's classmates ends up just thinking he's amazing and so in true Christopher style, he punches one of them and runs away. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so question. Rated or dated? <sighs> It's quite a hard one, isn't it? I didn't, I didn't like it, but I can absolutely see why it had the effect it did at the time it was released. But yeah, I'm going to have to say dated. Whether that makes me an absolute philistine, I'm just going to wear I, that. I, I don't think it does because I'm going to agree with no. you because something that was revolutionary can still get old. And you know, I'm look sure at get that on a t-shirt. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I should have written a line that was about how James Dean died young and left a beautiful corpse and this lived and perhaps didn't age so well and that that's my thoughts largely i'll I get think... that on the t-shirt jen <laughs> I, I don't know i think like i i think the subject matter although not the way they've gone about showing it i think the subject matter as discussed is sort of timeless mm. but mm. i thought the the acting style is really dated now the attitudes are really dated i didn't enjoy it uh, so I would, in general, agree that it is dated, yes. Great. Whose choice is it next week? Mickey. Mickey, what are we going to be watching? Next week, if you would like to watch along, dear listeners, we are going to be watching Brat Pack, cult classic, Pretty in Pink from 1986. Oh, Hannah's already pulling faces. Ooh. So... Uh. It's got a great song by the Psychedelic Furs, if nothing else. Hang on, Mickey. Have you picked another film with Harry Dean Stanton in it? Too fucking right, I did. (laughs) Standard Issue for All Women.